0: chapter 13 john chapter 13 and we'll get right into the message today john chapter 13 our theme for the year love, our theme for the year is one another and last week we looked at being members one of another and we saw the importance of how god places within every local body he places members in that body We're many members in one body and all members have not the same office the bible says so God has given each of us a role in the body that he's placed us in. You might say, well, Pastor, I don't know my role is. God has something for you. If this is your church, and this is where you come, and this is where God's led you to be, and this is your church, then you are part of that body. And you, think about and you think about your physical body this morning. When things don't function correctly, it's not a good thing, right? That's when we have problems. And... In the body that the Lord's placed, this local body of believers here, God's given each of us a function within that body. And we need to find that function. We need to operate within that function because the body, the church here, will never reach its potential for the Lord if everyone in that body isn't doing what God has for them. And that's one of the jobs as of a pastor. A pastor's supposed to help you find that job. I, you got your Bibles there in John chapter 13, but go with me real quick to... Ephesians chapter number four, real quick. Go to Ephesians chapter number four. This isn't part of my message. Last hour didn't get it, so they're missing out on something here. So Ephesians chapter four. And look at verse number eleven. Ephesians four eleven it says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets. And we know that the prophets and apostles they're no longer today. He gave what else did he give evangelists and some pastors and teachers? Why did God give you a pastor? That's what I'm getting to. Look at verse number twelve. For the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. A pastor's job is to help, look at verse 13, or verse number 12 there, is to help you mature in your walk with God, help you in the work of the ministry God has for you, and keep on looking there, and to build up the local body that he pastors. My job is to help you as part of the body find your spot and help you do what god's called you to do within that body and so that's important and so we looked last week being members one of another and you're important you are needed as part of this church some people think oh well pastor this church functions without me it does but not like it could if you were a part every single part's important you look at your physical body every part of it's important otherwise it wouldn't be there You'll say, you think about toes. If you didn't have toes, you couldn't keep balance. And some of you, even with your toes, aren't very good with your balance. So imagine if you didn't have toes, how bad your balance could be. And uh, every part is very important. So this morning we get to John chapter 13. Look down verse number 31 with me. And therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him and himself and shall straightway glorify him. Now you hear a lot of glorifying him through there and that might confuse you a little bit. We'll go back there and break it down here in just a minute. Verse 33 says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me as I said unto the Jews. Whether I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another As I have loved you, and that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. Father, I pray you bless the next few minutes that we have here this morning, and I pray that you'd be pleased and glorified. Help us get what the scriptures say this morning, and help us here in this area today. We love you, and we need you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Man's concept of love is a very shallow thing today. And it's a very flippant expression that people use today. And a lot of times there's not a lot of meaning that goes into the words, I love you. And there should be, it's important. During and as we look at this passage of Scripture here, Jesus demonstrated, you think about this, the highest example of love the world's ever known. And as Christians, we are to emulate the love of Christ that he had for us. To others in the greek and we know the new testament is written in greek there's several different when it comes to words that express various kinds of love there's eros love and that describes a sexual love there's the phileo love which refers to a brotherly love and then there's the love that god calls us to that's what we're talking about today and this is the higher type of love it's known as the as agape love it's a selfless and an unconditional love Maybe you've had an experience with a relationship in your life where it was short-lived, and I can remember a while back, a teenager came to me from our church, just early adult, and I like, "Oh, I love that boy so much, pastor, and I'm going to marry him someday. I am so in love." A few weeks later, I asked her how so-and-so was doing. We're not talking anymore. They were so in love, huh? They don't, that relationship didn't grasp what true love is all about. The truth is emotional love will wear off. And when we think about it, emotional love may be fleeting and will wear off, but a Christ-like love will last forever. It will never wear away. I mention often that my favorite book of the Bible is the book of John. And I know some people are like, Pastor, the four Gospels, they just talk about Jesus' life and all these different things. All four of them portray Christ in a different light. The reason why, though, the book of John is my favorite when it comes to the Bible is because the first 12 chapters talk about Jesus' earthly ministry and all that he did. And even goes back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then from chapter 13, for the next seven chapters, through chapter 20, through his death on the cross, it covers seven chapters of his last 24 hours here on earth no other book does that so we get seven chapters from basically one day in christ's life the last day he lived before he died on the cross and what he did during that time was he had so much to show his men and it was his final time with the disciples before he died on the cross and yes they would see him again and yes but he had some things he wanted to instill Into these men, and he wanted to give them some final instructions before he died on the cross. Leading up to this, so what happens in chapter thirteen? What happens from verse one through thirty that we didn't read this morning? Well, first thing that happens is Luke twenty-two tells us in verse ten through twelve says, and he said unto them, Behold, he shall enter into the city, and there shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. Verse number 11. And he shall say unto the good man of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber? Where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples. And he shall show you a large upper room, furnished there, make ready. So, what happens in chapter number 13 is the disciples and Jesus are in the upper room. You know, you've all seen, people have seen pictures of the Last Supper. I don't think the upper room, I don't think it was quite as nice as those pictures portray it to be, but the upper room, this is where they met. This was the last time, and what will happen is, the end of chapter 13, the last couple of verses, if you look at what it says there, you're in chapter number 13, at the end there, basically tells them that they're going to let's go, and it's time to move, and they're going on, and as that happens and all that stuff happens, they've been in the upper room in chapter 13. What takes place in the upper room? There are three events that take place that lead up to the verses we read this morning. The first one is they partake of the Passover feast. The disciples celebrated the Passover And the Passover was an annual memorial of God's deliverance out of Egypt, remember? The death angel came and the firstborn of Egypt died but if the Israelites took a lamb and and shed its blood and put it upon the doorpost the death angel would pass over their house and their firstborn child wouldn't die. It was called the Passover. And they celebrated the Passover there in that upper room and the Passover, that Old Testament thing that happened signifies the power and it was looking forward to Jesus' blood and how when God looks at us if the jesus's blood has been upon us and we're saved and all that wonderful stuff He saved us from the death of sin that's the first thing that took place in the upper room second thing that happened was jesus washed his disciples feet you see from verse number four to verse number 10 the fact that he washed their feet and there are some churches out there and we'll read those verses says he rise from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself And after he poured water into a basin, he began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And Peter said unto him, it's amazing how in verse 6 Peter calls Jesus Lord, and then he's telling telling Lord you can't do something in verse number 8. Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. (laughs) Jesus said unto him, If I wash not thee, thou hast no part with me. Verse number 9 says, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said unto him, He that is washed, neither not to save, to wash his feet, but is clean every whit. And ye are clean, but not all. That was talking about the fact that Judas was there with them, is what that was talking about. It was right at that time and all that would take place. But as we look at this, as we see these things before us, some churches will go around and I had someone, one time I went to visit them and when people come to our church, I like to go visit them. When I got there, they're like, Pastor, we have been waiting for you to come. Okay, good. When are you going to wash our feet? I'm, like, I'm not touching your nasty feet. I didn't, that was in my mind, I didn't say that out loud. I said, I don't know what calluses or bunions or whatever the case may be said they're like well jesus washed his disciples feet isn't that what you do as well like we came from a church where our pastor came to our house and washed our feet like you can go take a shower or a bath and wash your own feet anytime you want and uh that some people say well you're supposed to do it because that's what jesus did it's symbolic here of servant leadership every leader should be a servant if the king of kings the king of glory the creator of the world could in humility get on his hands and knees and wash his And today, it'd be a lot easier to wash people's feet today than back in those days. You have shoes, you have socks and different things. Back then, all, there was dust everywhere and that would not be a job that I'd want to do. But Jesus in humility and as a leader, he showed servant leadership and it's so important that we understand that. The best leaders are servant leaders. And I don't care what you do in life. If it's your job, let's say at work, and you're a manager, the best managers I ever worked for were the ones, and I, in Bible college and things, I did, I've loaded up trucks. I worked at UPS for a while. I worked at FedEx for a while. I also drove a forklift at other companies. And the best managers were the ones who, when something needed to get done, they were willing to get on the forklift and get busy too. I've also worked for the ones who would do nothing, be like, you figure it out. The best leaders are those servant leaders. And whatever area you lead, be a servant. You are not greater than anyone else. The greatest one of all, wash the disciples' feet. And if he's willing to do that, there should be nothing that we aren't willing to do. And may we all be that type of leader. I don't care what area it is. If you teach you know, at our Christian school, make sure you're a servant leader. Serve those kids be a leader, but serve them. As a pastor, I try my best to be a servant leader. I get my hands dirty all the time. I got several things this week I got to get working on and different things. But servant leadership's important, and Jesus displayed that for us. The third thing that happened in the upper room was the institution of the Lord's Supper. And finally, Jesus institutes the last supper with the bread and the cup, and it represents his body and his blood. And as a church, this is an ordinance that was given to us, not a sacrament, there are those out there that think that it's necessary to take an order for salvation. It's not necessary for salvation. The Lord's Supper is an ordinance. It is a picture. It's something to remind us of what Christ did for us. That's what it's all about. And a church is supposed to do it till the Lord comes. And we partake of it here, and He instituted it there, and it's something we can do just like Jesus did, and what a blessing that is. We get to the end. Of, so in the upper room, those three things, that's what takes place, which leads us to our verses for today. We see number one this morning as we get into our outline, we see the proclamation of Christ. You notice verse 31 through 33, the word glorified is used over and over again. It says, Therefore when he had gone out, he said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall glorify him in himself, and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while am I with you. Ye shall seek me, as I have said unto the Jews, whether i go you cannot come so now i say to you and what jesus is talking about here jesus proclaims and this is leading up to the proclamation that's being made what's being done here is that jesus christ is the messiah he is the son of man and now it's his time to be glorified now you wouldn't think of his glorification the same way that you would think of uh, you know his glorification was completely different think about the glorification of others and things that happen you know a president gets elected president of the united states his glorification whatever he gets that little you know they have that ceremony there and all those different things happen jesus's glorification happened letter b or letter a in his death jesus glorification began as he died on the cross and that's what verse 33 says yet a little while am i with you after being with the disciples a little while and performing all these miracles, it was time for Jesus to go and to die on the cross. Warren Worsby said like this, he said, From the human perspective, the death of Christ was a dastardly deed involving unspeakable suffering and humiliation. But from the divine perspective, it was the revelation of the glory of God. And during this moment of Christ on the cross, the whole world would see that there was a Messiah who came to shed his blood for the sins of mankind so that all could be saved. He came and Jesus offered himself as a covering for sin. 1 John chapter 2, verse number 2 tells us, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He died for all. And isn't it amazing that even today, 2,000 years after the death of Jesus, the cross still signifies the glory and victory that comes through Jesus Christ. Hey Christian, you don't need to live a defeated life because today we see an empty cross. It reminds us of the fact that we're on the winning side because of what Jesus Christ did and He's in heaven and someday, and what a day it's going to be when we get to be with Him. Jesus' proclamation, He talked about His death coming, also His deity. His deity when christ speaks of his glorification he's referring to his identity he's declaring himself to be the true son of god the bible is clear that jesus christ is eternal in nature he was not just born in bethlehem and that's when he began the bible tells us that in the beginning was the word in the book of colossians it tells us the world was created by him Jesus always has been. He's eternal. He always will be. You know, what separates Christianity from all other religions? The fact of what we believe about Jesus Christ. I have many people that will come to me, and sometimes people get hung up on the word. What's a Baptist? What's a Baptist? It's a Bible-believing Christian. That's what a Baptist is. And as a Christian, we identify that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's equal with God. And that's where we settle it. And I had, just the other day, I had someone I was talking to, a Mormon, he's like, we really believe a lot of the same thing. So we do not, and I'm not trying to be mean to you or anything in saying this, but is Jesus Christ the Son of God, equal with God, co-eternal, existing from the beginning till the end, and it is through his sacrifice, through his blood, that we're saved and nothing else? Not exactly. Then our religions have nothing in common. Because Christianity is what Christ is and what he's done. And the Bible is very clear. And he he made a statement to me. He said, well, I believe God someday is going to take all of our different beliefs and he'll just accept us all the way we are. I said, then what do you do with this verse? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's one way in heaven. No other way. Well, Pastor, I'll do my best doing you're not going to get in. Jesus said it. You believe the Bible to be true. That man that I talked to, he said, I believe the Bible's true. I said, then tell me how you're going to get in based on what you believe. Couldn't answer it. Jesus is the only way. Say, well, if someone has this belief in there, you know, maybe it's maybe it's similar and all of this. I tried to have a Muslim one time trying to tell me their belief in Muhammad and things and that Jesus was a good prophet and things and all that, that they could still get into heaven. And it doesn't work that way. And it's not because we're any better than anybody else. It's because of who we put our trust and faith in. When you put your faith and trust in someone who cannot save you, you will not get in. It's that simple. There's only one who you can put your faith and trust in that did it, died, rose again, and he's the only way. And this world needs to get that, but they don't get it. His deity. When we talk about it in the Bible, is clear that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John one verse number twelve and fourteen. But as many as received Him, to them gave me power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on His name. And the Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Christian, just a little plug right there. You see that little phrase, full of grace and truth? That should be what you strive for in your Christian life, balance. Jesus was full of truth, but he is full of grace. The problem in Christianity today, are you ready? We have a lot of Christians who are full of truth, and they exercise no grace. And then on the opposite spectrum of things, we have a lot of Christianities that is full of grace, and they have no truth with their grace. Jesus was full of both. Balance Christianity. Jesus was it. He should be our goal in all that we do. That was extra. The first service didn't even get that. See the benefits of coming to the second service. Jesus is the Son of God, and the Bible declares him to be. You might not understand fully all about his deity and the deity of Christ, but let me reassure you something. Are you grateful this morning he came as a man, dwelt among us, and died on Calvary? Because you got to realize, something, God could not die for man. Because God didn't sin and God is not sin. Man couldn't die for man because man is sinful and not a perfect sacrifice. The only person out of every person that's ever been here on this planet Earth and all the time it's been here, probably not billions of billions of years, probably about 6,000, 7,000, somewhere in that time. In that time frame, the only one person who could fulfill it, God himself had to put on flesh and become man. And Jesus Christ is the only one who could wash away sins. And praise God that he did and only God could be so loving as to send His Son to die on the cross and so powerful enough to raise again from the dead. Verse 32, the Bible tells us here that God was glorified in and through Christ. Christ's work on the cross, His obedience to God's will, His display of all those things brought glory to the Father. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 17. His prayer right before the cross said these words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hours come, glorify thy son, that thy son may also glorify thee. And look what Jesus said in verse four. I have glorified thee on the earth, and I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Every step Jesus took was to bring glory to his Father. How about you this morning? Are you living your life? Am I living my life to the glory of God, or am I living it to the glory of self? Far too many Christians are living their lives for themselves. And let me just, I mentioned it last service, priorities are so important. Most Christians would say that God's number one. I think people, say, people would say, you would want to say that. So I challenge you to go home sometime and to pull out a piece of paper and to write out your priorities in life. i am going to tell you from a biblical perspective what your priorities should be. Number one, God. He should have the preeminence in everything that we do. God should be number one. Number two, some people would argue what point number two would be, but I don't argue with people. They can be wrong, and I can be right, and it's all good in between there. But secondly, I would say the husband and wife relationship. God instituted the home well before he instituted the church. And if we want a good church, our homes are going to be right. Number one, God. Number 2A is your spouse to be your kids, to see family. Your spouse under God should be number one under God. Far too often in families, and this happens, the kids are above the spouse. Do you know when divorce is the most prevalent in homes? Between the years of 20 and 25 years of marriage. You know why? Because parents invest so much into their kids, they forget about investing anything to their marriage. And doing that, the kids move out and they get on with their lives, go to college, get married, whatever the case may be. You got two strangers living in a home that don't know each other. Your marriage is very important. And after God, number two, your marriage. And, and let me just say, your kids are very important. Under your marriage, your kids are very important. and Keep them there. But kids should never take precedence over mom and dad. Never. Mom and dad, kids, and you can have extended family there mom, you know, grandparents, all that different stuff. And then third, I'd say church and ministry. Because it's the Lord's work. I would make sure my family's in order before my ministry. And let me just give you a little plug here too. If you are so busy in ministry, your family's a mess, take a break from your ministry and get more concerned about your family. Because you're going to help the work of God in your ministry by having a good family. Family's very important. God Spouse, family, extended family, however you want to word that. Ministry, things of God, church, job, self. That's a good biblical order. Self should be at the bottom. I see people on Facebook and things all the time. I'm having a self care Saturday. Self care. Don't get me wrong, there should be a place you do need to get rest. And you do need to take care of yourself, but you need to make sure and everything else is in its proper place. But I'm a firm believer you need to you need to de-stress if you need a break. And men, make it so your wives can go do something. Get the, you know they spend time with the kids all day long. Make it so they can get out every once in a while. Do something nice so that they don't you know ease the stress on them. I could go both ways in the relationship there. You do self-care. It is important, but it's way at the bottom of the list you got to have everything else in the proper order. So take those five things. And maybe you say, Pastor, I don't agree that those are the five. Then you talk to God and you figure out the five for you. Write them out. And then put your schedule next to those five. Everyone would say that God would probably be number one. But is God really, truly number one in your life? You'd probably say your family and your spouse would be number two or whatever. Is your spouse really? Or does everything else come before your spouse? You wonder why our marriages are in trouble. Why our kids are neglected the way that they are? Because we don't put things in the proper. And you say, well, pastor, I got to work. And that's the hard thing. Nowadays, you live in, we, we live in California. It's not cheap to live in California and to balance everything. But you got to do your best. Some things, there are some days where you turn down the overtime so you can have time with your spouse and your kids. But then there are days where you got to do that so you can provide for them. There's a balance with it. You got to figure out that balance for you. Just telling you, look at your priorities, and everything in our life should be to glorify God. And that's what Jesus did, and that should be our goal as Christians as well. And none of that is even part of the message today. Now we're getting to today's message. Are you ready? That was all number one, but number one had to lead up to number two and three, right? So number two, here we go. Don't look at your watches. Forget about them. Here we go, number two. The exhortation to the church, the exhortation to the church verse 34 and 35 a new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you that ye also love one another by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if ye have love one to another these are at, as the death as time for his death on the cross was drawing near Jesus had some final words for his disciples first thing that we see letter A underneath exhortation here was a command to love now Jesus didn't say I have a good suggestion for you i have a good opinion for you he doesn't say that does he He says a new commandment i give unto you the word commandment is an authoritative prescription it's an injunction that jesus was giving to the church and we need to realize something that loving one another is not an option it's imperative If we're not loving each other in Christ, in a Christ-like way, we're disobeying what God has commanded us to do. Jesus wants us to, and this is what I love about Jesus. We talk about servant leadership. Jesus wants us to follow His example. What was His example? John chapter 15, verse number 13. Greater love hath no man than this, than that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus wants you to love each other the way he loved us. That's what he's asking us to do. And not only does he want us to love one another the, that way, but he wants us to do it with the right motives behind it. Paul said it best in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then are all dead. What is our love towards others? Is it a performance? Is it something you check off a list? We ought to love one another. Why? Because Christ's love flows through us. That's the only motivation for right loving one another. That's when the Bible talks about. Remember, we read last week, Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth. And the love of Christ, this verse here, the love of Christ constraineth us. The reason why we should love one another it's because God's love is just flowing through us. We should be conduits of his love. It's exactly what we should be. Great, another example of what we should be like, you think about the sun and the moon. Does the moon have any light of its own? Where does the moon get its light from? The sun. So the moon basically gets the sun and, and gets, a, gets its light so it shows us it gets its light from the sun, but gives us light. In this lost world, we're to be like the moon. We get the light from the Son of God. And that light should shine out of us. Great example. Isn't it amazing how God pieced so many things in creation to show us different things of how we should do? And that's just how amazing our God is. You see, we need to love one another. Bible tells us Galatians 5, verse 13 and 14, For brethren, we have not been called unto liberty. For we've been called unto liberty, only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. But what should we use that liberty for? By love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. When we talk of liberty, we talk of freedom in our world today, and we talk about liberty and freedoms and this world's view of it. Most of the time it involves selfish interests. Instead, our God-given liberty is the freedom to serve one another and demonstrate Christ's love to others. When God commands us to love one another, I love the fact that he shows us how to do it. How did he do that? The command of love, we see letter A, letter B, we see the demonstration of love. Verse 34 tells us there, he says, a new commandment, I give unto you that ye love one another, and look at this little phrase, as I have loved you. The disciples were commanded to love one another with the same standard of the type of love Jesus had for them. Remember, this happens right after Jesus just spends time washing his disciples' feet. He's about to die on the cross. His mind could have been in other places, but his focus was on those disciples. And here was Jesus hours before giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins. He was washing his disciples' feet. That's what love is all about. Someone said it like this, the disciples of Jesus will stand out in the world because of the divine quality of his love. How are we to love others the way Jesus did? Well, first of all, sacrificially. Jesus sacrificially gave of himself to us. He demonstrated that by giving his life for us. And in turn, we should sacrificially give ourselves to one another. Bible tells us, 1 John 3.16, "...hereby perceive we the love of God." because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what we're talking about here today. Under the rule of Oliver Cromwell, Lord Protector of England during the 17th century, a soldier, he was sentenced to death for his crimes, and the soldier was to be executed at the ringing of the curfew bell. When the time came, however, the bell didn't sound. The soldier's fiance had climbed the bell tower and wrapped her body on the great clapper of the bell to prevent it from striking, when the ropes were pulled. When she was brought before Cromwell to explain her actions, the weeping fiance showed him her bloodied hands, arms, and skull. Moved by her actions, Cromwell pardoned the soldier and said, your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. Curfew shall not ring tonight. That's what Jesus did for us. We were doomed, bound to hell. Died, bound to die at the sound of the judgment bell for our sins, but Christ took our place, died on the cross, and he delivered us from death so that we might have a home in heaven. That's how much Christ loves us. When you examine your life, or when I examine my life, do you see sacrificial love in our families? Do we only love our children when they're obedient? What about our love for our spouses? Christ commands husbands, this is what what the Bible says, for husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Husbands, do you love your wives with unconditional love? If she's good to me, I love her. That's not what the Lord called you to. That's not how it works. Jesus said, husbands, you love your wife the way I loved you and gave my life for you. That's a very tall order. Say, Pastor, you don't know the monster I live with sometimes. You married the monster, remember that, just remember that. Or the wife says, you don't know the monster I'm married to. You married that monster as well. But do you love sacrificially? That costs something. It costs Jesus' very life. We like to love when it doesn't cost us anything. Sacrificial love, we see that from our Savior and it should be displayed in our lives. And husbands, you need to to make sure that you're loving your wife the way God told you to. Love her unconditionally. Love your family. Love one another. Not only did he love sacrificially, but he loved righteously. And this is where we get christianity gets this all wrong so often we need to bear in mind that while god's love is sacrificial it is also righteous god's love does not permit sin i say what are you talking about john chapter 8 verse number 10 and 11 the woman who was caught in adultery remember jesus was down riding in the sand and he said he's without sin let him cast the first stone Well, this is the end of that there in verse number 10. says, When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. God in his infinite wisdom can love a sinner without condoning their sin. That's how a church should be. We must embrace sinners, but we must not embrace their sin. It's very important. A lot of Christianity gets a bad rap and says Christians hate homosexuals. God does not hate people, and we should not hate people at all. But we don't condone their sin of homosexuality. I don't condone the sin in my life of lying or whatever the case may be. It's sin in God's eyes. And so often we think God's love just overlooks sin and it's done, that's not how it works. Jesus told us lady, here, go and sin no more. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Someone said, I believe they said Gandhi said that. I've heard someone argue that and said Gandhi said that. I really don't care what Gandhi said because I follow Jesus' example and what he said. But I, I mentioned, I got, a, I got a situation, people, I, in our church, I love everyone that comes here. And the closer you get to people, the more time you spend with them. It's not an easy thing to call out sin. It's not. And the easy thing would be to just say, oh, just do your own thing. It's all good. And a couple weeks someone came to me and they, they want me to agree with them on some decision they're making on things. And it's tough. I've known them a long time. I love them. But I'm gonna have to sit down. Be like, before we go further, you need to see what God thinks about what you're doing and what's happened. You need to get right with God and get right, and then I'll help you. That's important. It's not easy. Easy would be, yeah, sure, I'll do it. That's not true love. Is I do love you. But I'm going to have to tell you what's right. The Bible talks about faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. There are times where, and that's the important thing, we love people. And Victory Baptist Church should be a place that loves everyone that comes through the doors. So so and so struggling with this, we don't like what they struggle with. I don't like the things I struggle with in my life. And I don't condone anybody's sin, and we can't. But we're supposed to love people. And that's what we see Jesus did, and we see Jesus showed that here. Jesus could have told her, hey, go, just go neither do I condemn thee. You go. You're good to go. I said, go, but hey, sin no more. And there's a balance with all that as well. When there's wrong done and things and sin has taken place, there's got to be repentance before God. I hear oftentimes people want to restore people and all these different things, and there's got to be repentance with God. And there are some people that believe you need to get in front of a church and repent in front of a church for all that stuff, and those people can have what they want and do what they want to do. That's not a biblical pattern for anything. If you look at the biblical pattern for things, the person needs to get right. Like some people would, the situation that I'm going to be dealing with, they would just have them go before the church. No. I'm their pastor. I'm going to go and I'm going to say, hey, I'm just laying this out for you. And then they got to decide what they do with it, with them and the Lord. And, when, and the thing is, we try to restore people that have never <laughs> reconciled or have... Um, repented of what they've done to God. And that's important. Because if you see then neither do I condemn, they go and sin no more, that's a repentance. Because you're turning from the sinning you've been doing and you're going to stop doing it. Repentance is a turning from. That's how that all works. And if anybody's lost in all that I just said, sorry, but I think I explained it all right. And then not only did Jesus love sacrificially and not only did he love righteously, but next. He loves constantly. His love never stops. And that's some Christians get this idea, you mess up, you sin before God, and God gets mad at you and he hates you. God, God will never hate a child of his. God might get sad, might God might, but he's never going to... You know, you be honest in the room. Most of you that have kids, there are times where your kids have not always done what you've wanted them to do. You have adult kids and you might do things differently than how they do it. Or they might step away from you for a while and might be mad at you about something. But did you stop loving your kids ever? No. So why would a perfect heavenly father ever stop? He won't. He won't. The Bible tells us in um, Romans chapter 8, verse number 38 and 39 For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're a child of God, nothing you do can separate you from his love. And sometimes we get bad in churches where we shame people like, God's, God's mad at you today. God loves you. Why Does he punish you because he's mad at you sometimes and chasten us? No. He chastens us because he loves us. If he didn't chasten us, he wouldn't love us. It's all about his love for us. And that's something to understand. His love is constant. It never changes. Nothing can change God's love for us. And nothing should be able to change our love for one another. Say, Pastor, you don't know what my spouse did to me. What did you do to the Lord? Probably far worse. Now, some people take that to the extreme. My pastor told me to stay with my husband. He's abusing me. Don't stay in a relationship with someone who's abusing you. Go get help with that. Take it to the proper people. I'm not for stuff like that at all. And that should never be the case. And that's not what I'm talking about this morning. Pastor, my husband cheated on me. You're going to need some counseling and you're going to need some help. Don't just think you can handle that all on your own. You do need help in that area. But by the grace of God, you can get through it, you can move forward. That's the type of love we're supposed to have. In a church, so-and-so, I just don't like so-and-so. Who cares? Love them anyways. If God can love you, you can love anyone. And that's not always an easy thing. But it's right. The Bible tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, it says charity is the word the King James used. Charity there is agape love. It's the same thing. This is the type of love that Christ had for us and the love we're supposed to display. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It's not puffed up. doesn't behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. And in our flesh, loving people is a difficult task. And there are people that we look at that do not deserve our love. There are. I could go through and name several people I can think of in my own life that don't deserve it. But God loves me. And I don't deserve it at all. God's given us His Spirit, when we yield to the Spirit. What's the first fruit of the Spirit? Love, love. us number three, and we're done here in just a couple minutes. Here, here we go. The identification of love. Something amazing happens when we live out God's command to love one another. Verse thirty-five tells us here that people around us begin to identify us as Jesus' disciples or followers of Jesus when we love one another. Very interesting. There, we know that we're following God's commandments when our love for one another is evident in our lives. We develop our testimony based on how we act. What type of testimony do you have? You know, I you know I I wear Jesus shirts everywhere I go. I have Jesus saves on the back of it's a bumper sticker on the back of my car. I don't put any of those on my car because if I'm ever a bad testimony, I don't want it to be the Lord's fault, you know. And uh, if I get cut off or something or anything else like that, I don't, I not ever get to say anything to people. Remember, pride. We talked about that last. Um, I wear t-shirts. I carry my Bible with me. I do all, I do all these things. Do you realize that's not how people are going to know that you're a follower of Jesus? They're going to notice it by the way you love one another. Would those around you at work, at play, at family gatherings, would they identify you as a Christian? God's people should be different. Why? Because we know who true love is. God is love. If you know Christ is your personal Savior, you should be developing an outward testimony that reflects Christ. Bible tells us, First John three seventeen, But whoso hath this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up the bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. James two, fifteen 15, 16, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you saying unto them, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? After billionaire hotel owner Leona Hemsley died in August 2007, she left her dog a $12 million trust fund for it to continue living a life of luxury. $12 million, no joke. She ordered that when when her dog died, it was to be buried next to her in the Hemsley mausoleum. The mausoleum was to be washed or steam cleaned at least once a year, and she had set aside $3 million for the keep-up of the mausoleum and where she was at and things. Leona also left two of her granddaughters out of her will, saying they know the reason why. It's a sad day when you love a dog more than your own family. And I get there could have been issues there, but we can tell that this woman truly loved her dog. But did she truly love her family? Her treasure was where her heart was. And when we love God, we can love anyone, regardless of the kind of person that they are. That's true Christianity. It's simple, you know why? Because God loves everyone. None of us are deserving of his love, yet he extends it to us. Someone said like this, when you love people who are like you, that's ordinary. When you love people who are unlike you, that's extraordinary. When you love people who dislike you, that's revolutionary. The ones who cried out, crucify him, crucify him, he's not our king. Hey, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He loved all of them. That's the type of love we should have. We see an outward testimony in letter B, and lastly today, we see an ownership testimony. Christ tells us in verse 35 that when we love one another, the world will know that we're His disciples and that we belong to Him. You can always tell if someone's a fan of certain things, of certain things they might wear, or certain things that they might have when they get a drink or something like that. They might wear a jersey. They might have a favorite music Group and they wear a shirt. Someone might like Disney a whole lot and wear a Mickey Mouse shirt. But you can see what people and someone might wear a uh, Seahawks jersey. You never. But today, are they going to do it against the Packers? Who knows? Hope so, right? I don't know if I. I think I'm going for Seattle. I'm not going for the Packers. I didn't tell Cruz that last hour though. But but you think about it. You have favorite teams. You talk about those teams. I'm a big Laker fan. I've been a Laker fan for years. Since I was six years old. And that was after showtime was just finishing up and it was when they were bad for a long time. I've been through the thick and the thin. I've always been a Laker fan. Always will be. And uh, last night, the two stars they got didn't even play and they still won by 15 points. Who needs LeBron? No, we do. I'm just kidding. Who needs LeBron and um, Anthony Davis? They do. But we talk about the things that we like, right? You know, there's sports. I saw Louis today. He's a 49er fan. And God forbid there's any other 49er fans in our church but he wore a 49er shirt today. Why? Because his team won yesterday. I can't believe he brought that filthy lucre into the house of God, but he did. But you think about it. We talk, they talk about our favorite teams. You wear a jersey to show your affiliation. You might even say, we won today, and you didn't do anything but sit on your couch and watch the game. You didn't do anything, but we won! But similarly, the world will see that we belong to Christ through our love for one another. Not a shirt you wear, anything else. If we truly love God, we'll want to love others and show them that we are followers of Christ. Mark 12, my last, actually there's two sets of verses left. Mark 12, 29 through 31, and Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear the Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. For this is the first commandment, and the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. What sets Christians apart from the world? It's supposed to be love. A lot of times it's our pharisaical attitudes. That's not the love of Christ. God's commandment is for us to love one another and to show this world the love of Christ in us. Jesus Christ showed us the perfect example of love. And what He expects of His children is to show that love to one another. First John 4, 9 and 10 says, For this, is the mani- for this was the manifestation, the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son to the world, that we might live through Him, here in His love, Not that we love God, but He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you're saved today, the people around you should see Christ in you through your love for them. Maybe we need to change the way we act at work. Maybe we need to change the way we act around the buddies. Maybe we need to change the way we act around our families. Maybe we need to change the way we act with one another in church. And when people come into this place God should be glorified. This is His house. And when people come in we looked at last week we need to be members one of another and everybody has a specific fun- function within the body. But as we look at today people are going to know if we're sincerely in this thing for the Lord based on our love for one another. Because there's going to be someone in the room that ticks you off. It's going to happen. I might have ticked you off. I don't know. Or someone else, you get mad or someone doesn't, not everyone thinks the same. There are some people that just, you know, there are some, some people that just rub you the wrong way. Have that ever happened with you? For me, no one ever has rubbed me the wrong way, never, ever. And no, I'm just, I lied. See, I talked about lying earlier. Just because I don't love, I don't like something about them. they aren't enough like me doesn't mean I can't show them Christ's love because we are on the opposite realm of things with him he said I still love you I died for you he died for the wickedest men and women that have ever lived on this planet he loved them say how do we love someone so wicked you tell them about the Lord There are people you look at and how could you love someone who molests a young person? That's not an easy one to be able to describe. Even the Bible says it would be better for a millstone to be cast around their neck and throw them in the bottom of the sea than to offend a little one. That's what the Bible says. But we're to love all. That doesn't mean that you trust people. You know, someone, someone robs you. They serve their time and they get out, and you're like, oh, I love you. You can stay at my house while I'm gone on vacation. That's just not smart. I would not, that's not a smart thing to do. But you can forgive, but you still got to be careful on certain things, and there's a balance with all of that. But the gist of the sermon is this Jesus, the last thing he's trying to get through to his disciples is this The world's going to know you're a follower of me if you love one another. The world's going to know that Victory Baptist Church is a church that follows Christ if we love one another. This world's going to know that your home is a home that follows Christ by your love for one another. Let's show our love. Because after all, the Lord's done for us, His love should be flowing through us to others around us. Father, we.